so good to see everyone this morning again. Um, someone once commented that one of the reasons you can trust the historical reliability of Scripture is because of its brutal, brutal honesty about its heroes. Uh, heroes in the ancient world were seldom flawed uh, to the extent of biblical heroes. But all, all across Scripture, there's just this honesty about um, the, the heroes that are presented. In some, re some records of ancient history, even, civil civilizations wouldn't even record a loss in battle um, to not de demean their nations or their gods. So there's almost this rewriting of history that we see. But when you approach scripture, there's just this honesty. Um, we see over and over again this very flawed picture of its heroes. We're considering the flood account whose hero I think most of us are very familiar with, and that's Noah. And the Bible describes him um, as an extraordinarily virtuous person. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, this is in the New Testament. It says, For God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Then back in our text, we've been in this account in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. That's where you can find the whole story of the flood and Noah's life. <clears throat> it says in chapter 6, verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. And then in chapter 7, it says, The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. And then in chapters 8 and 9, Noah built an altar to the Lord, sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Then God blessed Noah and his sons. I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you. It's a pretty good report card. Noah's doing pretty well <laughs> so far. Um, what an amazing testimony of the life that he lived and the heart after God that he had. The righteous, the obedient preacher, the man of faith, the heir of righteousness, a priest, Noah the priest, um, putting up offerings, the object of God's covenant. He is here in our text, drunk, passed out, with his pants down. <laughs> Not really the exact image of Noah, especially a, what, 900-year-old Noah, that we want to imagine. Now, if I'm Moses, you know, the, Genesis um, through Numbers in Deuteronomy, excuse me, is written by by Moses, the author Moses. And some people believe that primarily it was written by Moses and then there were some editors along the, along the way that edited some of it and whatever the case may be. Moses is writing Genesis and no doubt he wants to take his red pen to this section. <laughs> um, despite this horrific flood, Noah is saved, his children and family are rescued, the animal kingdoms reestablished, the promise of God is given that will endure with mankind. There's love, there's rainbows, there's rescue, there's promises, there's sweet aromas, there's all these different things happening. The love, the miracle, the rescue of God, crescendo, 
and sort of deflate to this elderly, drunk, naked man passed out on the floor. Mocked, by the way, and publicly shamed by his own son. Why, why on earth is this in the Bible? We could have ended a little bit earlier and been a little bit happier, couldn't we have? Now, over the centuries, I don't know if you know this, but people have noticed this kind of bizarre treatment of what's going on with Noah after all of this great rescue and all these great promises, and now we're given this story. People have tried to put some, like a positive spin to explain why this is in Scripture. And some people have said, this, well, this is allegorical. In other words, this didn't really happen. This isn't history. This is trying to teach us something about God. And what they'll say is that God is, is like the farmer. He's the one, care, like Noah, caring for the soil. Right? It said that in our text. So that's God the Father preparing the earth to, for it to be ready for his fruitful kingdom, his salvation, all this. Does that make sense? Now, Jesus is drunk Noah, which is kind of weird. right? But, but Jesus is pictured as taking the bitter cup of salvation, hanging naked on a cross and dying for our sins. You see, so there's this allegorical, this is why this is, why this is in here. Other people say, no, that this, there's a moral lesson in this. And I kind of like this one because it helps me out a little bit. Um, clergy should cover their bishops and not shame them. <laughs> right? So in other words, we, we, we don't parade the mistakes of other people, especially people that are in a certain authority over us. We cover them and help them and protect them. There's a moral lesson, so to speak, that, that we can learn from this. Now, these might have some applications. They might, these might be kind of helpful in the way we understand life and the Christian life. But I don't think that these will do. I think there's something else going on here, something a little bit more important than these things. Now, I'm convinced, I think, that this story has very much to do with the rainbow hanging over this sinner. Here is Noah, the product of uh, what is continued to be a fallen and broken spirit that's demonstrated itself in a certain resistance towards God's goodness and will. But there is this rainbow hanging over his head. The rainbow, God's promise, stretched over this fallen man. The story of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve is the same. They fall. They rebel against God. They turn from his goodwill and are expelled from the garden. Then we find this in their children, right? Cain and Abel, same thing. First children born to Adam and Eve. One child murders the other child. All of this dysfunction in humanity. Then following them, we see an account of a wicked generation that occasioned the flood to begin with. And where all of these dysfunctional types of stories leave off, what happens here is it's picked up in the life of Noah. Nothing has changed in the sense that man's heart is still fallen. It's still broken. But, and here's the hope, Here's the hinge of hope. In the bright new sky of God's promise hangs a beautiful symbol coloring the landscape. Underneath that promise lies a man, a broken man, a drunk man, a naked man, a man desperately needing a rescue. The man this promise was just given to Noah and his boys demonstrate that they need that promise to begin with. This is a 
pure demonstration of why God had to hang that rainbow, make a promise to save to begin with. Because had it not been for that promise, we would all be left to our own destruction. The rainbow tells us two things about life. This is what I want to talk about this morning. About the Christian life in particular. About what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. And the first thing is we bear the continued weight of evil in and around us under the rainbow, right? Second, over the rainbow waits renewal of God's completed kingdom, salvation. That's what we can learn from this, I think. Let me say it like this. God's promise to save us, friends, his rainbow pledge is both bitter and sweet. It's under and over the rainbow. Pardon the pun. (laughs) Under the rainbow, let's look at this first. Let's talk about life under the rainbow as Christians. What I mean by that, metaphorically speaking, is the, the difficulty that we bear at times. We're found oftentimes lost and confused and hurt and broken, betrayed by our children, maybe bearing the consequences of foolish decisions we've made in our lives. Life under the rainbow has a burden, a tension, a difficulty, even for the Christian. The God, that God did not wipe out evil completely, meant that evil would continue, it would persist. Because if God had wiped it out completely, Noah wouldn't even be alive, nor would his sons be. So the implication here is that God is going to endure with people who don't get it, who don't get him, who at times don't even seem to want to get him. But God is going to endure with them. It reminds me of another story in Scripture involving Moses. You guys know who Moses is? So, you know, if you name three of the most famous Bible characters, Moses is going to be on the list. Noah's probably on, on the list, too. So even if you're completely unaware of what the Bible is or what it says, I bet you you've heard of Moses. He's the guy that parted the Red Sea, the children of Israel passed through, right? So here's Moses, kind of a similar story to Noah's story. Here's Moses rescuing the nation of Israel after having been in captivity and slavery in Egypt for 400 years. He leads them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. We all know that part. And finally, maybe what you don't know about this, is he leads them to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And Moses has a vision of God where Moses hears God speaking to him directly. The Bible says face to face. He delivers Moses his word, his law. He gives it to Moses and he says, go give this to the nation of Israel. This is going to be my covenant to them. So he does. He goes back down the mountain. He gives them the Ten Commandments, and he says, I'm going to go back up now, because honestly, if God's talking to you face to face, wouldn't you want to go back up too? So he does. He goes back up the mountain. He starts speaking to God again. And you know what the children of Israel do? They decide, Moses is taking too long. What's going on? My kids have to pee, right? When are we getting to the promised land? We're all thirsty, So this is what they decide to do while he's up there speaking to God face to face and they're holding the Ten Commandments in their hands. They say, Aaron, which was his priest, Aaron, can you 
forget this whole God stuff that just led us out of Egypt and forget Moses. Build us another God and we'll worship that God. That's what they do. <clears throat> First commandment on the stones that were just brought to them, they decide, forget it. Amazing. So God, being everywhere present and all-knowing and all-powerful, speaking to Moses, said, this is Exodus chapter 32 through 34, by the way, speaking to Moses says, Moses, something's going on down there, and I've had enough. This is literally what it's, well, not literally, but I'm retelling the story in different words, okay? God basically says, I've had enough of them. I'm going to open up the ground and swallow them up, and I'm going to give my covenant to you instead. And Moses, Moses intercedes. Moses prays. And you know what Moses prays? Je Moses is the Jesus figure here. He says, remember your servants, <clears throat> Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Moses intercedes with God and says, God, remember your promise to save these people, the promise that you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember your rainbow, God. Because God... If you don't remember your rainbow, in other words, if you reject Israel, you've rejected your promise to Jacob. And if you re reject your promise to Jacob, you've rejected your promise to Noah. And if you reject your promise to Noah, you've rejected your promise to Eve. And let's be reminded of what that promise was. I will, through your seed, send a conqueror that will conquer sin and death so that your sin will be forgiven and that you will not live in a sinful, broken, fallen world, but you will live in a perfect, holy, righteous world in my presence. That was the promise of God to Eve from the very beginning. That's what that rainbow symbolized. And Moses here is saying the same thing. So what's going on? Why, <clears throat> Why does it seem that God is so quick to just suddenly smush us? What, like with Noah, right? I'm going to wipe everyone out except Noah. I'm going to wipe everyone out except Moses. What's going on here? God certainly is not some kind of old, senile, I forgot, oh, that's right, I made a promise, didn't I? He's not, that's not what's happening. Or perhaps you might think God just changed his mind. I made a promise, but I'm sick of these people. I'm, I, I'm taking it back, right? Like we would do. It's kind of, the scripture as you read it kind of seems like God is pre being pre presented in, some, in this way at times. That's not what's going on. God is always faithful to his promise. What's happening here is this is a reminder that <clears throat> post-Noah, post-Rainbow, post-God's promise to save, that evil still persists and that it's still a problem. That it's still an offense to us personally in our lives and to God himself. That, in other words, it isn't okay now. It's still a reminder that it needs to be paid for. And friends, what Israel deserved, what Noah deserved, what we and I, you and I all deserve is that justice. But it's taken by another. Because of that rainbow hanging in the, hanging in the sky, it's taken by another. And we endure in life until that day when Christ returns the heaviness, the burden of life under the rainbow. 
God has not forgotten his promise, but yet brokenness still persists in our world. It means that post-Noah and post-God's promise, we, are, we continually endure the bitter weight of the fallen person, both inwardly in us and outwardly around us. Now that's hard news, but there's some good news around the corner, so just bear with me. What does the Bible describe this as, this sort of this, this burden, this bitterness, that life under the rainbow, so to speak? We learn about it in verses 2 through 6. Now, we didn't read that to you in chapter 9. I'm going to read it now to you. It's a little section that we left out. I wanted to read it to you personally. The fear and dread, so God is talking to Noah now about, about life under the rainbow or after the flood. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth. That's why you can't pet squirrels, okay? The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. In Eden, it was just the fruit and leaves and um, um, arguably a vegetarian diet. Now God is saying... Um, the f- all living things are food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Now this is saying a lot, I know. And I don't want to say too much about it because we only have limited time. But what's clear about this is that as long as life continues, there is a relational dysfunction under the rainbow. That's what it means to have a certain bitterness. We see this in our experience in life from divorce to murder, to lying and stealing, to dishonesty. I got the bird the other day. I didn't cut him off. I don't know what he was so mad at. Like, literally, this happened to me. The text, so this text demonstrates a person-to-person evil, a relational dysfunction that sort of drives humanity to its most extreme form to kill each other. And God says, far be it for anyone to take innocent life. According to Genesis 9, killing another human being is wrong primarily because that person is made in God's image. Now, this is very important. It's wrong to kill another human being because they're made in God's image, not because they're useful, not because they're more human than someone else is human, not because they're more good-looking. Fruit is useful and good-looking, right? We cut up one of those fruits, what's it called? Where'd my wife go? Uh, it's like this thorny-looking pink fruit. It's very tropical-looking. We, what is it? Pat? No, it's it's dragon fruit. There it is. You ever you ever get a dragon fruit and cut it in half? It's magical. It's it's beautiful and so, so fruit can be beautiful. Fruit can be very useful, but we're told to eat it, consume it. There's a certain death that happens to fruit when we do that. But human beings are different. Human beings are made in the image of God, and consequently, because of this, life, if we're made in the image of God, then life is a gift from God. 
See? A life is God's life. It's not even yours or mine. It's God's. Carl Barth said that human life is a loan from God. It's God's life, not ours. Being made in God's image also is about a relationship. If we are made in God's image, it means that we have relationship with him. That we're his image bearer. That means that you and God have a history. Whether you're conscious of it or not, it's there. He's been there the whole time, from your very conception to this point leading up to your life right now. There's a history between you and God. It's not about our capacity in demonstrating our own humanness, right? This should lead us to revere and respect all forms of human life, from very young to very old to unborn. We might think a human is more than an embryo or a fetus, An embryo and the unborn fetus can't communicate. They can't be fruitful and multiply. They can't procreate. They can't subdue the earth and fill it, right? That's what it sort of means to be made in the image of God. We read this in... uh, 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 An unborn fetus can't do that. But neither can newborns. And neither can children or toddlers. And friends, in a very real sense, if if we are sinners, we can't even be fully human until our sin is gone. To be in the image of God is to be like God. So to be human is to imitate him perfectly. So none of us are, I guess, in that sense, fully human. Where in the process, Christianity says that human beings are more humans becoming. Right? We're all at a certain stage in that process. God has a history with image bearers, no matter what that stage might be. Jeremiah chapter 1, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You see, there's a relationship that God has with all life. Psalm chapter 139, you knit me together in my mother's womb. He knows us intimately. A life, friends, is God's life, no matter what the stage of life. And what we learn here is that all human beings have the right to not be killed. Isn't that good news? It's so simple, right? Like, just think about that for a second. I did not say something very profound right there. (laughs) All human beings have the right to not be killed. That's fantastic. That means that in God's economy of things, I should be protected from you all. You shouldn't have the righteous to decide that you don't want me around anymore. So you're going to call some guys and have some heavy shoes put on my feet right? Like you don't, you, we have the right to not be killed because we're God's life and he has a relationship with us from the unborn to the sick to the depressed to the elderly to victims of war and famine and disease and genocide. All of these friends have the right to not be killed either actively or passively by our neglect. Yet that God allowed Noah and his boys to go on means a continual relational fight just by implication that that God has to say, by if someone takes your life, then their life will be taken too, that, that he even has to say that implies that we live in a dangerous world, a world that was never intended to be, a world with relational dysfunction. Jesus really simplifies this too. He says if you hate someone in your heart, you've murdered them. 
So this is more, according to Jesus, than just about actually killing somebody. It's about a posture of heart. Do we truly love people? Yet God allowed Noah and his boys, as I said, to continue in this relational fight. And though life is sacred to God, in the fallen world's hands, human life will not be cherished. That's life under the rainbow, unfortunately. It's a fight. It's a clamor. It includes divorce and murder, infidelity, and more. Life under the rainbow carries with it the bitterness of relational dysfunction and tragic loss. And that's not all. It also includes nature perversion. The text tells us that animal life will begin to fear humanity. Now, this is interesting. Imagine a wilderness where a lion and a cobra and a gorilla can sort of just hang out with me. Isn't that cool? That we don't, that the Bible says that when Jesus comes, when the kingdom comes, a child will put his hand into the, the asp's den, it's a poisonous snake, and not be harmed. You see, nature even is at war with itself and us. That's the product of life under the rainbow. When God decreed to save us and not wipe us out completely, it means that we have to endure some of the tragedies of life, even in nature. We see even God's love here, though. What's interesting about this, a grace under this, is that God loves even the lesser order. That means those created things that aren't necessarily you and me, his image bearers. That God loves animals. That God loves trees. That God loves this earth. He made it. I was trying to explain this to my daughter last night. Um, I said, imagine, Noel, if you drew a picture and gave it to me and I said, eh, and I ripped it up, and I threw it in the trash. What if, I, what if I did that? It would almost demonstrate, like, I don't, it's just a picture. I didn't rip her up and throw it in the trash. But it's something she made. It's something that she took the time to use her creative energies and powers, right? And she did it for a purpose, to even show love to me. You know, that's what God's creation is. God didn't just arbitrarily make a billion birds. He made them so that we could delight in his glory, his power, his creativity. He made them to show his love for us. So for us to just aim for the squirrel instead of dodge it is a disrespect to God's creative genius. Now, I'm not, I'm not, one, uh, I'm not an extremist. I'm, I'm not saying that things don't happen and we shouldn't hunt. I'm not trying to make that statement here. But I, do, I will say, though, that there is a certain amount of respect and love and appreciation that we should have for God's creation. Yet in nature, what we have, life under the rainbow, is a dysfunction, a hostility. The, the scripture said, I will demand an accounting even from every animal. So in other words, if humanity mistreats even the animal kingdom, there's an accountability that we have before God. But there is a perversion. I can't hang out with a gorilla. He'll kill me. There's a dysfunction because of the fall. There is a bitterness that we carry 
and the way that we treat each other, and not, not only that, the way nature treats itself. That's the bitter demand of life under the rainbow. The bitterness we carry caused by mankind's continued rebellion brings another weight under the rainbow, and that is God's provisional law. Okay, let me explain this to you, because this is, I think, important. These laws given to us by God were never even intended to be laws. The fact, in other words, that there needs to be a law to not do this, and if you do this, then this is what's going to happen to you, implies that we're being rebellious towards our nature, towards God. So God makes a provisional law. God God would not need to tell us, in other words, when it's okay to get divorced or when it's okay to kill in a world with no evil. Because in this type of world, a world that's fully submitted purely to God's will, we wouldn't do this to begin with. We wouldn't lie to each other and cheat on each other. We wouldn't be doing these things. There would be no need for it. You see, that's what God's provisional law is. Because the world, because even our our human heart, as Martin Luther said, it's curved in on itself, God makes provisional laws to restrain evil. Right? Does that make sense? In a world where people actually do kill each other, there needs to be consequences. In a world where where husbands actually do beat up their wives, there needs to be a way out. You see? This is what Jesus meant when the the, um, Pharisees were saying, when is it okay to divorce? And he said, divorce was only given because of the evil of man's heart. What he's saying is, just because God allowed for it in certain circumstances doesn't mean that it's okay. It's an indication of a deeper problem, you see? In the text I just read, we see a proto-human government starting to form. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. Now, whatever you might think about capital punishment, and by the way, I don't know that that's necessarily how you have to interpret this, Christians have been divided over what, if it's you know, ethical or not um, over the centuries. Whatever you might think about capital punishment, I'm going to dodge that bullet and not even mention it right now. Um, what's clear from Scripture is that God has provided both law and government to restrain evil. We can at least acknowledge that. We could at least say that. The, the reason we have police officers in prisons is because there are bad guys, Right? As the flood restrained evil, so does God's provisional law and human government. Yet all these things make our world a more hostile place. A difficult and sometimes bitter place. Rocked by relational disasters, natural disorders, legal tensions, God makes his promise to Noah, hung his rainbow, pledged to not wipe out us entirely from the earth, but we're left with these messes that others make. We awake the day after, drunk, naked, and violated. With the promise comes life under the rainbow. And it can be hard, can't it? But here's the hinge. Here's the hope. Because, friends, no one's going to deny, you might deny why this happens in our world, but no one's going to deny that these things happen in our world, right? You might, we might disagree, if you're not a Christian, why these things happen in our world, but you're not going to disagree with me that these things happen in our world. We live in a dangerous, difficult, 
sometimes tragic world. No one's going to argue that. As a Christian, I have an answer for the reason for that. It's because God made us in his image, and we've turned from him. To turn back to him, to be saved by him, is to restore what would be the pure and joyful and righteous living that we should have had to begin with. You see, friends, even though there is a difficulty, there is a tension, there is a bitterness, there is life under the rainbow, friends, there is life over it. There is hope. And what's sweet about God's promise is what exactly is he promising us? You see, he's not leading us to what we currently endure, the difficulties of life, but he is leading us in Christ. The reason the rainbow's there is so that he can lead us through it to the other side of it, to conquer it, to end it once and for all. You see, friends, that's the hope. That's the future. That's why Jesus Christ died and rose again and is coming back to once and for all finally finish this business. He is not leading us to what we currently endure, but to be free from it. Humankind is estranged from God's love. We're at war with man, with each other, and even creation. And we're left oftentimes naked and alone. But Jesus, friends, he bears that nakedness for us. He walks in backwards. These two boys of Noah, he's the one who walks in backwards and covers us. You see, the Bible says that Jesus Christ can't look at sin. That's the image there, right? So he, God walks in backwards, so to speak. And he rescues us. He saves us. He dies for us. He removes our sin from us so that it's gone completely. Your life as, is, is being lived now as a Christian as if you have never disobeyed God ever. Imagine that. He walks in backwards and covers us. Jesus, friends, he was naked on a cross He drank the bitter cup of our sin and the dysfunction of this fallen creation. And you know what he's going to do when he comes back? He's going to rescue it. He's going to bring it back. All the tragedies of your life will be made right, friends. You see, life under the cross is hard. That's where we bear the trials of life. But because, because the rainbow is there, it's an indication to us. God has made a promise. He set it in the sky to bring us through. So put your faith in Jesus, friend. To be brought over it to the other side of it. Every moment that we feel the burden of our own or someone else's sin or pain should be a reminder that we have no right to continue on even for a moment. We should be at the bottom of the sea. But that we live out, we live out today, currently, is a sign of God's love and patience with us. It's the same time a demonstration of God's justice and grace. And over the fallen records of our bitter and broken history hangs a rainbow from one end to the, to the other, inviting us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, I hope that you will this morning, if you don't already. You guys heard of John Bunyan? Some of you maybe. 
Um, John Bunyan uh, lived some centuries ago, and he wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. And it's basically a long allegory of what it's like to be a Christian. He was a Christian man, and he wrote this in prison. And it's an allegory of what it's like for a person to come to know Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian, and how does one get there? And the title sort of gives, gives it away. It's a pilgrimage. It's a progressive pilgrimage, Pilgrim's Progress. One that begins with a heavy burden on our backs. And let me close with this. The gospel says that through death comes life. That's the gospel. Through death comes life. We die in Christ. We live with Christ. And that's bitter. When we die with Christ, it's bitter. That's where tragedies live. That's where our sorrows and pains live. That's where our failures and mistakes live. But when we die in Christ, we live with Christ. It's bitter, friends, as one of the characters in Pilgrim's Progress points out. At the start of the book, um, there's a man named Christian. Guess who he is? He's not very, he doesn't make this hard to follow, okay? At the start of a book, there's a man named Christian, and he's seeking, he's got this heavy burden on his back, and he wants to just unload it. It's so heavy. And there's a character he comes across named Evangelist. Guess who that is, all right? He says, you go this way, and this burden will be lifted from you. So he goes on his little journey. He makes his pilgrimage. And he runs into a guy named Worldly Wise Man. And he says this to Christian. Listen to me. I am older and more experienced than you. If you continue in this direction, you are likely to experience wearisomeness, painfulness, hunger, perils, nakedness, sword, lions, dragons, darkness, and in a word, death. And who knows what else? Worldly Wiseman looked Christian directly in the eye and said, these things are certainly true and have been confirmed by the testimonies of many pilgrims just like you. So why should a man so carelessly place himself in danger by listening to a stranger like this evangelist? He was a stranger too, by the way, but he doesn't say that. Christian replies, you don't understand, sir. This burden on my back is more terrible to me than are all the things you have mentioned. I don't care what perils I meet along the way as long as eventually I can be delivered from my burden. And friends, I don't know a better paragraph to describe what it means to be a Christian. God does not promise us sweet victory and absolute success in zero pain. As a matter of fact, life under the rainbow is hard. But through the death of, of Christ comes life. I don't care what perils I meet along the way as long as eventually I can be delivered from my burden. Friends, oh, don't we carry them. You're carrying them right now. I, I, I would just venture to guess that most of us in this room are carrying, carrying them right now. Dealing with the recent loss of a loved one. Maybe the soon, what seems to be the soon loss of, of a loved one. Maybe a marriage that's falling apart. Maybe you even know you've been unfaithful 
you've done something heinous and it's ruined things around you. You see, friends, we carry this burden. Life under the rainbow is hard, but turn to Christ and he'll take it from you, for you, and carry it. And you know what you get? You get his life on the other side. That's the promise. Come and get it. Don't wait another minute. Trust in Jesus Christ. Believe in him, and you will be saved. There's a joy that comes with that. You see, I don't mean to describe the Christian life as always bleak and always awful until you get to heaven. There's a joy that comes with it. You see, we grieve in Scripture, but not as those without hope. There's a hope that comes to us, that helps us continue the journey. Amen? Would you pray with me, friends? God, um, we come to you and we recognize, Lord,